Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City Employment and Civil Rights Law Firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. My name is Meyer Nassar, and I'm joined by co-hosts Casey Wolnowski and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Today's podcast episode is going to discuss age equity and why it is so important. Today's featured guest is the Executive Director and Board Chair of Age Equity Alliance, an organization dedicated to ensuring age equity within the workplace. Our guest speaker today is an expert on global inclusion and diversity with over 30 years of experience across both private and public sectors around the world. Please join me in welcoming Sheila Callahan. Thank you, Sheila, for joining us to speak with us today. It's my pleasure, my dear. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about Age Equity Alliance. Age Equity Alliance is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that was created specifically to address workplace issues around age equity and the fact that ageism is the last socially acceptable ism out there. And it's almost like hidden and it's not acknowledged. And so the whole purpose around Age Equity Alliance is helping educate workplaces what unconscious age bias and age discrimination looks like. And so I guess with working towards age equity, what specifically does your organization do in an effort to try to cater to that equity within workplaces and other institutions? Absolutely. Well, it's a lot around education. So when you think about typical diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and the training around unconscious bias, it typically revolves around race and gender. And age is not part of that discussion. And so a lot of what we're doing is helping people understand how age bias and age discrimination shows up in the workplace. And then, of course, what steps need to be taken in order to create more inclusive environments? Because so much happens when you have an unconscious kind of bias and discrimination going on, even though people don't realize that they're doing it, it's experienced by the workplace. So, for example, if you have a 30-year-old who sees anyone over 45, if you're in the tech industry, if you see people 40 and 45 being displaced, then that creates this shadow threat of age discrimination that you know you're going to encounter when you cross over into the 40s. And it decreases the sense of belonging and inclusion. It creates fear. And whenever you have fear in a workplace, then it decreases productivity, it decreases collaboration and innovation. So that's some of the things we do. Some of the other things that we do aside from education is working with organizations to help them see where age inequities occur. And so we do an age equity analysis. And if employers provide their demographic data around age, we compare that within the industry and across industry. But there's so much that we can do just by looking at an organization's website. You go out and you see if all of their images are young, 
then that's an issue. I mean, what I see when I do these evaluations is that often, almost always, the imaging on a company website is diverse. And that's fantastic. But they're all like under 30. And that's not fantastic, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's an example, looking at their career portals and how they language their jobs. And age equity, our focus is not just on 40 and older, even though that's where most of the age discrimination is felt. It's age inclusion across the age spectrum. And there are ways that people in early career experience bias and discrimination as well. And for example, not everyone, especially these days when education is just so incredibly expensive, even for a state institution, Not everybody's taking that career path. A lot of people are self-teaching, self-learning. There's so many opportunities to learn without going to a four-year institution. But if you're posting for an entry-level job and you're requiring a four-year degree, that's discriminating against the younger early career entries. And so we look at all different kinds of aspects of the way a company presents itself internally, externally, and help them identify areas where they just don't see what they're really doing. Do you think that when you say that you don't think that they see what they're doing, do you get a sense that that they may have underlying biases within the way that they structure their companies? Or do you think that there are some kind of preconceived notions about who can do what and what is expected from somebody that is over the age of 40? Like, What is their objective in discriminating or catering an environment that is not inclusive to those that are from a spectrum of different age groups? I think there are a lot of things going on. I think more often than not, it's just systemic. It's something that has been built over time. If you think about the history of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we go back to 1964 and the Civil Rights Act, and we look at what came after that, affirmative action, which was focused on race and gender. Then in 1987, the Hudson Institute published a report called the Workforce 2000. And it was essentially outlining all the things that the U.S. would need to do to be economically viable and economically competitive in the 21st century. And of that, they outlined four challenges. Well, actually, they outlined six challenges. And the first two were about the global economy and about technological changes. But four of the six challenges were around people. And I'm going to tell you what they are in reverse order. So the last challenge that they mentioned was around education, keeping the workforce upskilled to keep up with technological changes. Mm. The third thing that they talked about was fully integrating Blacks and Hispanics into the workplace. Mm -hmm. The second thing they talked about was the importance of women and creating this sense of work-life balance. And then the first thing that they talked about in terms of people strategy was the aging demographic. And how do you acclimate to that? What do you do with that? Because clearly the data was showing how, and we're living this now, how this group of people 65 and older are going to be the predominant age group, right? And so how do you be economically competitive? How do you keep talent in your organizations when all the talent is growing older 
and the younger talent pool is diminishing because of the birth rate dropping. So this is back in 1987. And that report actually was the pivot to where companies started bringing on, it was almost like a rebranding of affirmative action because, and you guys know this, but that was at the time where you were seeing a lot of, what is it? Reverse discrimination lawsuits, mm -hmm. right? So this was the perfect opportunity to rebrand this initiative. So organizations started bringing on people and it, it was called a diversity. But still what they were focused on were the same things, race and gender. And then in the late 80s and the 90s, the human rights campaign came on and then they began advocating for LGBTQIA friendly organizations. And so they came out with the Corporate Equality Index, which by the way, I think is the most brilliant thing ever because they graded companies with a high score of 100, but you had to meet all this criteria and they started really low with the bar. And then as more and more companies started scoring 100, they raised the bar. And if companies wanted to keep that 100 score, which they did, then they had to meet that. And they were always, always, always raising the bar. So that happened in the 90s and, and into the 2000s. But nowhere is age. Nowhere. And so what happens is you have this diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's evolved, you know, nomenclature and that kind of thing. But the emphasis has been race, gender, sexual orientation, disability. But nowhere has there been an emphasis on age. And so part of the problem is in the building. And then we move into cases where we have this big IBM class action lawsuit. And the last five years, I think I read in the latest EEOC finding, they never even provided when they were doing their reorgs and they were making people redundant. They didn't provide the age data about redundancies. They didn't for five years. They didn't. And there was no sense of accountability. So that's the other thing that's missing around age. When you report on race and gender around your hiring, your promotions, your development and all that kind of stuff, you're not reporting on age. And so there's no accountability in that area as well. And so I think that's part of it. And then finally, we have this culture, this society that is so youth centric that being over 40 is a horrible thing. Nobody wants to be over 40. And I have this interesting story that I'll share with you to tell you how stigmatizing being over 40 is. I'm a contributing writer for Forbes and I have a lot of people pitch me. And over the last 18 months, I've had probably five different pitches from people who have created this amazing recruiting tool to help recruiters and hiring managers source for diverse talent. So they have these great platforms where candidates can go in and they can self-select. Okay, I'm African-American or okay, I'm female or okay, I'm queer or okay, I have a disability. And I've test driven a couple of these. I've interviewed a couple of these people and the programs are great. And some of them even have this back-end stuff where they help flag Oversights, like, okay, the last three times you sourced for this job, you did not include X. So it's a great tool to help create awareness. But every single tool that I've ever been exposed to, five so far, they don't include age. I just had a pitch from someone last week. Same thing. So I write him back and I say, does your amazing tool include age? And he said, no. He said, okay, let me see if I can get this right. We don't include age because we want to prevent bias. And I'm thinking, well, what is your tool for? What about, you know, race? Is there no concern about bias there? Why are you leaving this out? 
he writes me back and he said, well, I'll give this information to the CEO, but do you really think we should include age? That is how stigmatizing age is in the workplace. So there are all these things happening at the same time, which is why it is so important to create awareness. Do you think the idea of retirement and this principle that we have in our society fosters discrimination against older employees? Because it's kind of viewed as the goal is to ultimately retire. So as people start getting closer to that goal, a lot of employers feel that, well, we're just encouraging them to do what they want to do anyway. And I feel like sometimes the whole idea of retirement gives an excuse to employers to try to force older employees out and say, well, we're doing it for you so that you can have a retirement and live your golden years doing whatever you want. What's your feeling on that? That's a great question, Jeff. Thank you for asking that. I think that, first of all, organizations make a lot of assumptions and they don't ask enough questions. And so that's part of the problem. But the other thing is that for a long time, there were mandatory ages where you were expected to retire. And once that was abolished, there was still this whole idea that people were going to retire by a certain time. And if you go back 20 years, when a lot of different organizations, companies had pensions, then that was a doable thing. You think you retire and then live on your pension or whatever. But what data shows is that people who retired would often die soon thereafter because there was something in us as human beings that we need to feel like we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. We have to feel like we have purpose. We have to feel like we can contribute and that we belong. And so I think that a lot of it is just this leftover ideology about what retirement is. And you'll hear a lot that retirement just needs to be retired. And it does. And I can tell you that most people 65, 75 and older that I know, they still want to be engaged at some level. There's a member on our team in his 70s, works in technology full time. He, I mean, to be discounted when you want to contribute, it really deeply hurts the individual that suffers that. Absolutely. And so let's have a conversation about the experience that someone has as a result of not being included, not feeling like they belong, or essentially these assumptions that lead up to someone's experience being that they really aren't wanted. And so how that emotional, psychological impact occurs for somebody within the workplace and beyond in terms of diversity and inclusion within a workplace. I'm sure that you've come across many people, and this is a lot of the effort behind your organization is to cater to awareness. But what have you seen in terms of the emotional and psychological impact for people that experience discrimination on the basis of their age? So most of my exposure to that is because I'm a contributor to Forbes and I cover age and aging in the workplace. And a week doesn't go by that I don't get emails from people who describe these horrendous experiences that have devastated their lives. When I first started contributing to Forbes on this topic in early 2019, that was two years ago, actually. And by August, I can remember having a conversation with my editor and I said, this is depressing me. I mean, this is really depressing me because the stories are so hard to hear. And part of the reason why the stories were hard to hear is because I had that same experience. 
So I had left my organization. I worked for a global organization, worked in communications and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I decided to step away because my four sons were growing up so quickly. And I didn't want to get to a place later in life and regret not taking more time with them if I could. I was very lucky. My husband and I were able to work it out so that we could go from two incomes to one income. And I left the workplace. And so five years ago, we relocated to Texas, which is where I am now. And I thought, okay, my three boys are out of the nest. My youngest is going to high school. I can't think of a better way to engage in a new community than to go back to work, you know? And so I gave it my best shot. And after the first six months, I'm like, geez, <laughs> I must not be doing something right. And so I remember I started investing in all these things. Like I invested in this resume coaches book on like a hundred different ways to write your resume, depending on what the circumstances are. I bought a six week course on how to interview like a millennial. You know, I'm a really competitive person and I'm like, okay, I'm going to know how to do this. And that didn't work. And then finally I sunk thousands of dollars into a career coach in the area who was supposed to have all these contacts. And she does, she does have a lot of contacts, but nothing, nothing ever came of it. And I was in denial for the longest time because I know what skills I bring to the table. I know the kind of performance record that I have at the organization I left. I know that I'm passionate. I know that I've continued learning. It's not like I resigned and then watched TV all day. You know, <laughs> that wasn't how it went. And so it took a long time. And when it finally hit me, when I realized what was going on, I was in shock. And then after that shock hit me, I began noticing how much younger everybody else was in the positions that I was applying for. And then I became embarrassed because I was a woman in her 50s who couldn't get a job. And it was humiliating. It was demeaning. It was demoralizing. It was every word that you can think of. And it creates a sense of depression. And so I know what these people are going through and what they're feeling because I've been there and it hurts. It's interesting that you talk about that this is the last kind of form of accepted discrimination because what we see, not I don't want to say frequently, but we've seen numerous times are companies that feel completely free and justified in putting job postings and posting job openings that say recent graduates only, must have graduated within the last 18 months, which is just code language for only younger applicants. And it's... Right. Gutsy, because I mean, you wouldn't see a job posting today that says blacks and Jews don't apply, but the same sort of code language is still freely used when it comes to excluding older employees who had graduated two decades, three decades ago. So it's just interesting that you say that because it's just blatant that we see. You're right, Jeff. And it's one of the reasons why I'm really, really pleased that the EEOC came out with those guidelines they published, I think, just in the last month around examples of systemic discrimination. And for age, 
they include things like that. If you're posting, say, recent graduate or youthful or high energy or digital native, I mean, they're underscoring that. And so my hope, and this goes back to what uh, we spoke of earlier around accountability, my hope is that there is going to be an elevated sense of accountability to organizations who do this. Now, I do my own little thing. If I see things like that, I will email the link to the EEOC guidelines for systemic discrimination and say, you might want to check this out. There are other things that companies do that are disheartening. And for example, if they have their equal opportunity statement and they list everything under the sun except age, that's a problem for me. That's a problem for me. Recently, Walgreens. Walgreens, wow. just a couple of weeks ago, I went out and looked and I found them. And I'm like, okay, so I've found that Twitter is a great way to get companies' attention because typically organizations, they're monitoring that. And so I've tweeted, hey, you might want to fix this. And I've gone back the last two weeks, I've gone back to see if they fixed it yet. And they haven't. But, you know, they have a new CEO. And so she's probably getting her feet on the ground, but that would be a good person for me to reach out to and say, hey, you might want to have a look at this. Wow. Sheila, in your experience with the Age Equity Alliance, what industry or industries have you noticed or have you seen to be, I guess, amongst the worst offenders when it comes to age discrimination? I think tech probably gets the reputation, whether deserve it or not, right, right. As, as being the quote unquote worst. But what other industries that perhaps the ordinary person wouldn't recognize versus someone who's had experience investigating and looking into this? Yeah, Casey, I think probably the worst offender would be advertising, you know, media creatives. I mean, truly, I spoke with someone not long ago who said, and she worked in the industry as a creative, and she said, you know, unless you're an executive at the executive level, when you reach your late 30s, you can just know that you're about done for. And the only thing you can hope for after that is to contract but they're not going to have you in-house because you're not young enough. You're not fresh enough. You don't have the new innovative ideas, which is crazy to me. <laughs> Do they think that there's like this button that just flips off when you cross 40? I mean, I don't know. Sure. I guess I, the ability to create original content or to be creative, I guess they assume that once you hit 39 that that ends. But why do you think that is? I mean, certainly a lot of discriminatory attitudes are born out of stereotypes or, or false perceptions. I mean, I don't know the first thing about the advertising industry. I'm a lawyer, right? But at least if I'm trying to pinpoint why that would be the case, it's like, is it because the 19 to 36-year-old demographic is so valuable that they want people who connect with that and they just assume that, well, if we're going to connect with that demographic, we need people in that demographic. And therefore, once you're out of that demographic, you're no longer useful for us. I mean, do you have any theory as to from where that belief is born? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, Casey. I mean, if you think about advertising, only 5% of ads that you see on television are going to have somebody over the age of 50. And they're mostly like Pharmaceutical me medical, or, <laughs> pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's what I was thinking. Thank yeah. you. So I think that's part of it. But I think there is something else going on too. And I believe that it is... This young talent, they come in and they're so grateful to be there. And I think companies know that they'll work 80 hours and it's almost, I don't want to say abusive, but that's kind of what it feels like. It's almost creating this culture of 
They're in there and they're workhorses and they're giving it their all because they know they have to make it big. They have to make an impression. They have to do something great. They have to do the Nike, you know, they have to make it or they'll be like everybody else. Once you cross over the big 4 they'll be gigging and looking for contract work. And what do you recommend to employees that maybe they're not sure whether they're being, you know, they feel that something has changed, that they're being ostracized, they're being treated differently? but they're not 100% sure of why it's happening. They think it might be due to their age. I mean, what do you recommend those people do, those employees do? Well, I am not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in uh, Age Equity Alliance, we really work with organizations. We don't work with individuals. Got it. Okay. So at the same time, what do you recommend that HR departments do or management does to try to alleviate any sort of age? Right. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. I think that the most important thing is to acknowledge that this is an issue. I mean, you cannot keep sweeping it under the rug. And and I get that HR and diversity, equity and inclusion champions are exhausted from the work that they are doing right? And that this is one more thing, but it doesn't have to be one more thing because think about it. Age impacts every single person, no matter what diverse characteristics you might have. So when you include age, you're actually enhancing whatever programmatic efforts you have going in every other category. So acknowledge that it exists. Be smart about how you integrate it into the things that you're already doing and set goals just like you do for all of your other people's strategies and measure and survey. Survey your employees, have focus groups, have them talk about issues, create a sense of trust. They're just, yeah, you treat it just like every other thing, but you treat it. And to treat it, you have to admit. Right. Yeah. So I know, Sheila, you've you obviously worked throughout the world. And I want to ask you this question because you brought up a number of things about how what led up to this situation that we are experiencing in terms of the demographics and how they're essentially addressing this and what their motive is behind it. But what have you seen in your experience abroad with the concept? I know that in many different cultures in Asia, the Middle East and Europe, there is perhaps a different view, a different perception, a different opinion opinion on aging and age discrimination and what we have in our minds in terms of people and their abilities and what the motive behind a company is in terms of inclusion and diversity. And so, I mean, for the listeners, do you have any thoughts about like what you've seen around the world in terms of this issue? So what I understand is that age bias and age discrimination is a global phenomenon because around the world, you have this people aging into the 65 and older. I mean, that demographic is growing around the world and it is an issue around the world. The World Health Organization recognizes that age bias and age discrimination is an issue and they have plans in place to address it. But even in the countries where traditionally age carried more respect, even those cultures are shifting and it's not the way it used to be. I know that, so for example, I have a lot of collaborators that I brainstorm with and we just share information and what works. And there's an organization in Australia called Maturius. It's the combination of mature and curious. And they kind of do what we do and they're working with organizations the same thing. 
But they found that it's not so much the challenge to get the talent in, but retaining the talent. So there's a lot of work. You can't just say, okay, we'll, we're, we're going to stop firing all of our over fifties. And yeah, we might hire one or two every now and again. But if you don't have an inclusive workplace and it doesn't feel safe to them and they're not able to really contribute and feel like they're heard, then they're not going to stay. So in the U.S., by comparison, 50-year-olds can't even get interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And to many extents, I mean, this comes down to that whole underlying issue about like what you mentioned before about 80 hours of work for somebody who happens to be perceived to be, I guess, younger and mm-hmm. have more energy and the ability to work those hours as a part of proving themselves. And then this whole... I guess, misconception that it just kind of seems like the labor force is just trying to like exploit people to the point where it's encouraging certain generalized, the stereotypes of like encouraging that this is what we want to see in order to get the most productivity out of people. And I feel like when like, for instance, like Europe, I think that a lot of people think about Europe from the perspective when it comes to work-life balance, that they seem to have a better way of doing it in terms of respecting people's life and having the balance of maintaining work and life. And I think that in many ways here, the United States has been known as a nation where we do a lot. We work hard. We're hardworking people. And the more that we work, the more hours that we put in, the more FaceTime that we show, the better that we are. And so I guess the impression is, is that people that are older are less able to do that in the general mainstream. And what are your thoughts about that? I mean, is that kind of what they're like selling? I love the word you used, exploit, because that was the word I was looking for earlier and just couldn't pull out. Absolutely. That's what I think they're doing. I think that when it comes to older workers, I think that they're certainly capable. I think they just, I mean, my goodness, I've done that. I've worked 60, 70, 80 hours when I needed to, when I was much younger. And I, you know, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to draw the line in the sand. I'm going to give you 110% while I'm there, when I need to be there. And I'm probably going to think about it when I go home, but I'm not going to live there and sleep on the sofa, you know, and drink beer out of the tap. That's just not my thing. It's so important for all of us to learn to take care of our health, our physical health, our mental health, our emotional health, our spiritual health. And if we start making that a priority from the get-go and recognize that the whole person has to be holistic in how they care for themselves, and that requires workplaces to, for example, understand that flexible working and flexible vacationing That should apply equally to everyone across the workspace, across the age spectrum, across the hierarchy, you know, early career, mid-career, you know, wherever you are. I think flexibility is so, so important. I was teaching a course and there was a millennial, self-described millennial. I don't use that kind of nomenclature, but if someone describes themselves that way, I'll go with it. So she was a self-described millennial and she was very hostile. And so when I kind of drilled down into where, why she felt so angry, what it was that made her think that it was okay to be so angry at me, she said, well, she said, you know what? I'm working a full-time job. I've got children. I'm taking care of my kids. I'm taking care of my house. I'm taking care of my parents and I'm tired. And people over 50 are saying they want my job. And so here's the thing. Everybody needs flexibility because somebody over 50 could be taking care of their parents because you know what? People are living longer. I saw something on social media. There's a man somewhere celebrating his 117th birthday. Okay. 
you know, people are regularly living to be a hundred sure. and, and they say, I know. And they say that the university of California, Berkeley, I think it was came out with a study several years ago that said everybody being born is today. Well, not everybody, but at least 50% are going to live to be a hundred. So what that person felt angry about, about being sandwiched, it's moving up the age bracket. We're all, we're all being sandwiched. Yeah. We're all feeling that way. No, Sheila, I just have to say one thing. I agree with pretty much everything you've said on the podcast today, but there's one thing that I have to entirely disagree with you on, and I'm sorry, but I will say that you are never too old to drink beer straight from the tap, okay? Oh, that's, just my, that's just my opinion, all right? Okay, my opinion. Crazy. That's the well, one maybe... thing I do disagree with you on, okay? Well, never I'll too have old. to try. I'll never try. too old. <laughs> For you, Casey, I'll try. Okay, all right. It but has to only... be gluten-free. Of course. Gluten-free beer, <laughs> maybe not the most flavorful beer in the world, but hey, look, if it comes from a tap, just give it a shot, right? All right. For you, I will. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about when people now experience discrimination within the workplace on the basis of their age. There's at least two different aspects that come into mind. One, when they're looking to be hired at a job, and the second is when they've now been hired and they've been working somewhere and they're, they've been there for many years and now they're being treated unfairly. Those different experiences in terms of obtaining employment and actually retaining employment, how does one go about complaining about instances in which they've been failed to be hired in a situation? Like for instance, Jeff mentioned certain ads that may indicate that they're leaning towards hiring people that are recent graduates or something that's systemically incorrect or other instance of when they're working somewhere and they're starting to push somebody towards retirement. How does one go about making sure that their rights within the law are preserved and that they have gone about a process to make sure that they hold the employer accountable for what they're having to experience? Well, I think they should consult one of you guys, <laughs> you know, seriously. Here's, here's the issue with people who feel like they're experiencing age discrimination. The majority of them don't do anything about it. And the reason they don't do anything about it is because they're afraid that it will inhibit their getting what they want to get in that's a job. And so they don't do it. So that's a problem. Age discrimination is certainly underreported. And so what I tell people, and again, our organization, our mission and vision and business model is not to provide these kind of services to individuals because we're not employment and labor attorneys, right? But I have given talks and I have addressed the fact that people need to report suspected age discrimination and they can do that in their organization. They can go to HR if they feel comfortable doing that. They can go to their diversity, equity, and inclusion person if they feel comfortable to, to doing that. Some organizations have internal grievance processes. They can file an internal grievance. They can do that. They can call and ask for consultation with a labor and employment attorney. They can do that. They can go to the EEOC and they can file an age discrimination complaint and let the EEOC figure it all out. So there are a lot of different pathways, but the first and most important step is to report it. And so I bring this to Jeff. Jeff, tell us how our listeners, if they've ever experienced any form of age discrimination at the time of when they're looking to be hired or if they have a job and they feel like they're being treated unfairly, how should they go about essentially complaining, reporting it? Well, if you're, I mean, if you were denied a job, it's going to be 
difficult to complain. You might not know who to complain to. You might not know what the procedure is. So in that instance, reach out to an employment attorney. If you're currently working someplace, the first thing that you probably want to do is see it like Sheila was saying, whether they have any internal grievance procedure. So a lot of companies will have an internal complaint procedure. They'll have someone who's designated and is authorized to investigate complaints of discrimination. And all employees should know that in the U.S., when you complain, about age discrimination that's protected under the Age and Employment Discrimination Act. And as part of that statute, there's an anti-retaliation provision, which says that anyone who complains of age-based discrimination is protected against subsequent retaliation as a result of that complaint. So they should know that. It's very important, like Sheila said, to document it, to make sure that when you do complain, you complain in writing so that there's a record of it. Because in our experience, when people complain verbally, suddenly everyone forgets about that complaint and everyone has amnesia as if that person never complained. So it's very important that you complain in writing and retain a copy for yourself. And one thing I wanted to mention is, Sheila, you talked about people with whom you work, and we speak to a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people who reach out to our office with employment-related matters. And I will say, I think probably the most timid and the group of people that I guess are the least gung-ho, I'd say, about doing anything about what they believe to be wrongful conduct are people who believe that they suffer from age discrimination. It is this sense of, I'll say, shame. It's this sense of not understanding. It's the sense of not wanting to believe what is clear and evident, in my opinion. Perhaps a very cautious approach to wanting to exercise their legal rights. And I think it all is kind of part and parcel with, I guess, where people are in terms of what they're experiencing and just the wealth of emotions that go into age discrimination. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the word that you use that resonates with me and resonates with the people that I've interviewed for Forbes would be this sense of shame and unworthiness. I mean, look, people, when they see, when they've made every effort, I tried to reenter the job, the workforce for three years, <laughs> you know, and there's such a sense of worthlessness when you feel like you have something to offer and you want to offer and nobody wants you. I remember asking myself, okay, my sons are grown. I'm not going to spend another 50 years rocking on the front porch. I mean, why am I here? Mm -hmm. I have to do something. And that is human nature. That is innate. And so I think that people who come to you, Casey, and they're so beat down and they're probably like I was, they're in this state of shock and they can't imagine the rest of their life being diminished. Yeah, it's in many ways a sense of disbelief. They come to us and they say, you know, I can't believe that this is going on. Like, it can't be this, right? It can't be my age, even though they're all the telltale signs of, for example, it's, well, the other people who are in their 50s have been let go. And I'm kind of one of the last people here. But, you know, Tom and Bob, like, they were wrapping up projects. So maybe that's it. And, well, you know, they brought some people in and I know that they want to cut costs and these people are working, going to make half of what we did, but that can't be it. Can't be my age. And when you combine all the factors that you look at and you say, look, I don't know how to, else to break this to you, but it really appears as though you're being discriminated against because of your age. It's almost a sense of disbelief. It's like, yeah, I, I, I don't want to believe that that's the case, but it is. And we don't see that as frequently with a lot of other types of discrimination. Maybe the only other thing I can think of off the top of my head is a lot of times you have people with disability discrimination that they don't want to believe or there's some shame that 
I'm not adequate because of my disability. I'm not as good as other people because of my disability, that there's a sense of not wanting to believe that they're being treated differently because of that. But I think age, in my opinion, that's probably far and away the one where you have people who come to us that are just in kind of a denial denial of it. And it's really troubling. It's troubling that people are so willing to dismiss it where it's so prevalent and it's so abundant that I guess it's also taboo. People don't necessarily want to talk about it. Yeah, I think you're right. One of the things that I would like to see companies do is consider if you have an employee that's been with you 10 years, 15 years, whatever, and you're thinking about reducing costs, that employee could probably do the work twice as fast, if not more so, than somebody new who's going to have to come in and onboard and learn the ropes. The other thing that I want employers to think about is renegotiating the salary, renegotiate benefits. All Everything is negotiable. I mean, well, let me back up. This is what I always say. Employees have wants and they have needs. Needs are not negotiable, but wants are negotiable. So just because you have an employee who's been with you for this long and you're just thinking, let's just push them out the door. Have a conversation. Realize that everything is negotiable. It's not written in stone. And maybe that employee would agree to work for a little bit less if it meant keeping their job. Absolutely. All right. Sheila, I really appreciate your time today. I really, we thoroughly enjoyed learning more about your organization and the great work that it's doing. Deeply appreciate your insight. And I hope that those that are listening to this podcast will be able to learn from it, to know how they can go about reporting instances in which they experience it, or reach out to somebody who's a professional to hopefully give you the empowerment that you need to be able to address what you're going through and try to find some level of closure to it or some form of justice and accountability. But Sheila, I really appreciate your time today. It was definitely a very informative conversation. It was a pleasure to be with each and every one of you. And thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Thank you so much, Sheila. Have a good afternoon. Have a good weekend. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.